Section 2 of Waverly, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverly, or Tis Sixty Years Since, Volume 2, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 37. Waverly is Still in Distress. The velocity and indeed violence with which Waverley was hurried along nearly deprived him of sensation, for the injury he had received from his fall prevented him from aiding himself so effectually as he might otherwise have done. When this was observed by his conductors, they called to their aid two or three others of the party, and swathing our hero's body in one of their plaids, divided his weight by that means among them, and transported him at the same rapid rate as before, without any exertion of his own. They spoke little, and that in Gaelic, and did not slacken their pace till they had run nearly two miles, when they abated their extreme rapidity, but continued still to walk very fast, relieving each other occasionally. Our hero now endeavored to address them, but was only answered with, Chanel Brolagum, i.e., I have no English, being, as Waverley well knew, the constant reply of a Highlander, when he either does not understand or does not choose to reply to an Englishman or a lowlander. He then mentioned the name of Vikiam Vor, concluding that he was indebted to his friendship for his rescue from the clutches of gifted Gilfillan, but neither did this produce any mark of recognition from his escort. The twilight had given place to moonshine when the party halted upon the brink of a precipitous glen, which, as partly enlightened by the moonbeams, seemed full of trees and tangled brushwood. Two of the highlanders dived into it by a small footpath, as if to explore its recesses, and one of them returning in a few minutes said something to his companions, who instantly raised their burden and bore him, with great attention and care, down the narrow and abrupt descent. Notwithstanding their precautions, however, Waverley's person came more than once into contact, rudely enough, with the projecting stumps and branches which overhung the pathway. At the bottom of the descent, and as it seemed by the side of a brook, for Waverley heard the rushing of a considerable body of water, although its stream was invisible in the darkness, the party again stopped before a small and rudely constructed hovel. The door was open, and the inside of the premises appeared as uncomfortable and rude as its situation and exterior foreboded. There was no appearance of a floor of any kind. The roof seemed rent in several places. The walls were composed of loose stones and turf, and the thatch of branches of trees. The fire was in the center, and filled the whole wigwam with smoke which escaped as much through the door as by means of a circular aperture in the roof. An old Highland Sibyl, the only inhabitant of this forlorn mansion, appeared busy in the preparation of some food. By the light which the fire afforded Waverley could discover that his attendants were not of the clan of Iver, for Fergus was particularly strict in requiring from his followers that they should wear the tartan striped in the mode peculiar to their race, a mark of distinction anciently general through the Highlands, and still maintained by those chiefs who were proud of their lineage, or jealous of their separate and exclusive authority. Edward had lived at Glenacoich long enough to be aware of a distinction which he had repeatedly heard noticed, and now satisfied that he had no interest with his attendants, he glanced, a disconsolate eye, around the interior of the cabin. The only furniture, excepting a washing-tub and a wooden press, called in Scotland an ambry sorely decayed, was a large wooden bed, planked, as is usual, all around, and opening by a sliding panel. In this recess the Highlanders deposited Waverley, after he had by signs declined any refreshment. 
His slumbers were broken and unrefreshing. Strange visions passed before his eyes, and it required constant and reiterated efforts of mind to dispel them. Shivering, violent headache, and shooting pains in his limbs succeeded these symptoms. And in the morning it was evident to his highland attendants or guard, for he knew not in which light to consider them, that Waverley was quite unfit to travel. After a long consultation among themselves, six of the party left the hut with their arms, leaving behind an old and a young man. The former addressed Waverley and bathed the contusions, which swelling and livid color now made conspicuous. His own portmanteau, which the Highlanders had not failed to bring off, supplied him with linen, and to his great surprise was, with all its undiminished contents, freely resigned to his use. The bedding of his couch seemed clean and comfortable, and his aged attendant closed the door of the bed, for it had no curtain, after a few words of Gaelic, from which Waverley gathered that he exhorted him to repose. So behold our hero for a second time, the patient of a highland Esculapius, but in a situation much more uncomfortable than when he was the guest of the worthy Tomanrate. The symptomatic fever which accompanied the injuries he had sustained did not abate till the third day, when it gave way to the care of his attendants and the strength of his constitution, and he could now raise himself in his bed, though not without pain. He observed, however, that there was a great disinclination on the part of the old woman, who acted as his nurse, as well as on that of the elderly Highlander, to permit the door of the bed to be left open, so that he might amuse himself with observing their motions, and at length, after Waverley had repeatedly drawn open and they had as frequently shut the hatchway of his cage, the old gentleman put an end to the contest by securing it on the outside with a nail so effectually that the door could not be drawn till this exterior impediment was removed. While musing upon the cause of this contradictory spirit in persons, whose conduct intimated no purpose of plunder, and who in all other points appeared to consult his welfare and his wishes, it occurred to our hero that during the worst crisis of his illness, a female figure, younger than his own highland nurse, had appeared to flit around his couch. Of this, indeed, he had but a very indistinct recollection, but his suspicions were confirmed when, attentively listening, he had often heard in the course of the day the voice of another female conversing in whispers with his attendant. Who could it be? And why should she apparently desire concealment? Fancy immediately aroused herself and turned to Flora MacIver. But after a short conflict between his eager desire to believe she was in his neighborhood, guarding, like an angel of mercy, the couch of his sickness, Waverley was compelled to conclude that his conjecture was altogether improbable, since to suppose she had left her comparatively safe situation in Glenacoic to descend into the low country, now the seat of civil war, and to inhabit such a lurking place as this was a thing hardly to be imagined. Yet his heart bounded as he sometimes could distinctly hear the trip of a light female step glide to or from the door of the hut, or the suppressed sounds of the female voice of softness and delicacy, hold dialogue with the hoarse inward croak of old Janet, for so he understood his antiquated attendant was denominated. Having nothing else to amuse his solitude, he employed himself in contriving some plan to gratify his curiosity. And despite of the sedulous caution of Janet and the old Highland Janizary, for he had never seen the young fellow since the first morning. At length, upon accurate examination, the infirm state of his wooden prison house appeared to supply the means of gratifying his curiosity, for out of a spot which was somewhat decayed he was able to extract a nail. Through this minute aperture he could perceive a female form, wrapped in plaid, in the act of conversing with Janet. 
but since the days of our grandmother Eve, the gratification of inordinate curiosity has generally borne its penalty and disappointment. The form was not that of Flora, nor was the face visible, and to crown his vexation while he labored with the nail to enlarge the hole that he might obtain a more complete view, a slight noise betrayed his purpose, and the object of his curiosity instantly disappeared, nor, so far as he could observe, did she again revisit the cottage. All precautions to blockade his view were from that time abandoned, and he was not only permitted but assisted to rise, and quit what had been, in a literal sense, his couch of confinement. But he was not allowed to leave the hut, for the young Highlander had now rejoined his senior, and one or other was constantly on the watch. Whenever Waverley approached the cottage, Dewey the sentinel upon duty civilly but resolutely placed himself against it, and opposed his exit, accompanying his action with signs which seemed to imply there was danger in the attempt and an enemy in the neighborhood. Old Janet appeared anxious and upon the watch, and Waverley, who had not yet recovered strength enough to attempt to take his departure in spite of the opposition of his hosts, was under the necessity of remaining patient. His fare was, in every point of view, better than he could have conceived for poultry and even wine were no strangers to his table. The Highlanders never presumed to eat with him, and unless in the circumstance of watching him treated him with great respect. His sole amusement was gazing from the window, or rather the shapeless aperture which was meant to answer the purpose of a window, upon a large and rough brook, which raged and foamed through a rocky channel closely canopied with the trees and bushes about ten feet beneath the site of his house of captivity. Upon the sixth day of his confinement, Waverley found himself so well that he began to meditate his escape from this dull and miserable prison-house, thinking any risk which he might incur in the attempt preferable to the stupefying and intolerable uniformity of Janet's retirement. The question indeed occurred whither he was to direct his course when again at his own disposal. Two schemes seemed practicable, yet both attended with danger and difficulty. One was to go back to Glenacoic and join Fergus MacIver by whom he was sure to be kindly received, and in the present state of his mind the rigor with which he had been treated fully absolved him, in his own eyes from his allegiance to the existing government. The other project was to endeavor to attain a Scottish seaport, and thence to take shipping for England. His mind wavered between these plans, and probably, if he had effected his escape in the manner he proposed, he would have been finally determined by the comparative facility by which either might have been executed but his fortune had settled that he was not to be left to his option. Upon the evening of the seventh day the door of the hut suddenly opened, and two Highlanders entered, whom Waverley recognized as having been a part of his original escort to this cottage. They conversed for a short time with the old man and his companion, and then made Waverley understand by very significant signs that he was to prepare to accompany them. This was a joyful communication. What had already passed during his confinement made it evident that no personal injury was designed to him, and his romantic spirit, having recovered during his repose much of that elasticity which anxiety, resentment, disappointment, and the mixture of unpleasant feelings excited by his late adventures had for a time subjugated, was now wearied with inaction. His passion for the wonderful, although it is the nature of such dispositions to be excited by that degree of danger which merely gives dignity to the feeling of the individual exposed to it, had sunk under the extraordinary and apparently insurmountable evils by which he appeared environed at Cairnbrecon. In fact, this compound of intense curiosity and exalted imagination forms a peculiar species of courage, which somewhat resembles the light usually carried by a miner, 
sufficiently competent indeed to afford him guidance and comfort during the ordinary perils of his labor, but certain to be extinguished should he encounter the more formidable hazard of earth damps or pestiferous vapors. It was now, however, once more rekindled, and with a throbbing mixture of hope, awe, and anxiety, Waverley watched the group before him, as those who were just arrived snatched a hasty meal, and the others assumed their arms and made brief preparations for their departure. As he sat in the smoky hut, at some distance from the fire, around which the others were crowded, he felt a gentle pressure upon his arm. He looked around. It was Alice, the daughter of Donald Van Lane. She showed him a packet of papers, in such a manner that the motion was remarked by no one else, put her finger for a second to her lips, and passed on as if to assist old Janet in packing Waverley's clothes in his portmanteau. It was obviously her wish that he should not seem to recognize her, yet she repeatedly looked back at him as an opportunity occurred of doing so unobserved, and when she saw that he remarked what she did, she folded the packet with great address and speed in one of his shirts, which she deposited into the portmanteau. Here, then, was fresh food for conjecture. Was Alice his unknown warden, and was this maiden of the cavern the tutelar genius that watched his bed during his sickness? Was he in the hands of her father? And if so, what was his purpose? Spoil, his usual object, seemed in this case neglected, for not only Waverley's property was restored, but his purse, which might have tempted this professional plunderer, had been all along suffered to remain in his possession. All this, perhaps, the packet might explain. But it was plain from Alice's manner that she desired he should consult it in secret. Nor did she again seek his eye after she had satisfied herself that her maneuver was observed and understood. On the contrary, she shortly afterwards left the hut, and it was only as she tripped out from the door that, favored by the obscurity, she gave Waverley a parting smile and nod of significance ere she vanished in the dark glen. The young Highlander was repeatedly dispatched by his comrades, as if to collect intelligence. At length, when he had returned for the third or fourth time, the whole party arose and made signs to our hero to accompany them. Before his departure, however, he shook hands with old Janet, who had been so sedulous on his behalf, and added substantial marks of his gratitude for her attendance. "'God bless you. God prosper you, Captain Waverley,' said Janet, in good lowland scotch, though he had never hitherto heard her utter a syllable, save in Gaelic but the impatience of his attendants prohibited his asking any explanation. End of chapter 37